We are glad you're with us on this Sunday morning. I'm Mike Colombo and this is Postscripts. Each week on the show, we look at news and politics with our news partners at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. With me in studio is Christopher Ave. He is the national and political editor at The Post. And joining us from the nation's capital is Washington Bureau Chief Chuck Roche. Early Friday afternoon, President Trump's former campaign chairman Paul Manafort pleaded guilty to two criminal charges as part of a plea deal that includes his cooperation as a potential witness in special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into Russian election meddling. The deal will short-circuit Manafort's trial scheduled for later this month. Chuck, this deal is somewhat of a stunning development considering Manafort's previous defiance when it came to cooperating with this investigation. Yeah, uh, first I'd, I'd like to offer uh, some prayers and thanks or th thoughts for the people in, uh, in the Carolinas dealing with the hurricane. But uh, onto, the, onto the topic here, um, you know, it, it was stunning in, in a couple of respects in the sense that, uh, you know, Manafort had told uh, Gates and others, uh, this Mr. Gates and others who were involved with him that, uh, you know, to be steadfast and to fight the charges and he'd done nothing wrong. Um, but in the statement that he issued Friday, Friday um, afternoon, uh, or his, his lawyer had issued, he said that uh, he basically wanted to get it behind him and wanted to, uh, you know, prepare his family for whatever was coming. White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders issuing a brief statement following the announcement. It reads, this had absolutely nothing to do with the president or his victorious 2016 presidential campaign. It is totally unrelated. The president's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, said, once again, an investigation has concluded with a plea having nothing to do with President Trump or the Trump campaign. The reason? The president did nothing wrong. Manafort is now part of a list that includes his former right-hand man, Rick Gates, former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, and several others who have cooperated or pleaded guilty in connection with Mueller's investigation. One would think this has the president's level of concern at an all-time high, Chuck. Well, it probably is. Um, they're, they're sort of half right on what their claim, claim was. Uh, it, it does have to do with activity that took place in 2012 and before the, long before the 2016 campaign. However, if there, was, if there is anything to these, um, you know, these allegations that have been out there that there could have been uh, some sort of uh, complicity with the Russians during the 2016 campaign, Manafort and these others would be in a position of knowing it. Now, uh, we, we, they are also correct though in saying you know, that there's not been nothing that, that linked the two events, the one on Friday and the allegations that Mueller is looking at. But if they're there, now he's got cooperating witnesses, including the president's uh, campaign manager in 2016 for, for a few months. Christopher, we continue to talk about a potential timeline. It's one of those things that seems to be a bit of a moving target. The Mueller investigation taking place now for more than a year. Uh, this would seem to be another shoe dropping and another important shoe as it relates to the information that Mr. Manafort could provide to that investigation down the road. Um, people are getting anxious. Certainly the president is anxious, but as far as that timeline is concerned, it kind of seems at this point like we're not going to hear about this until after the November midterms. Well, that's probably true. I mean, it certainly seems like there is going to be no indictments or no public airing of what, of what Mueller has before the election. And you know what? I think that's fine because people aren't necessarily voting on whether Donald Trump uh, is or isn't guilty. People are voting on members of the Senate and Congress and other races. 
Lay that aside. Uh, the, the president is right. The White House is correct in saying that these pleas don't have to do with the Trump campaign in 2016. That is completely accurate. What is unknown, though, what the White House can't say and what you or I can't say is what Mueller's actual investigation has to do with that. He's looking at was there some kind of collaboration between the Trump campaign and a, a foreign government in order to manipulate an American election. These are very serious charges. A couple things we do know, just to remind us all, uh, we know that in a speech, Trump said, Russia, if you're listening, uh, find and give up Hillary's emails. He said that in a speech. We know that people close to Trump set up and held a high-level meeting with people who said that they were representatives of Russia. So these things, this is not fake news. This is not some kind of political gotcha. This is actual, you know, these are actual facts that are being investigated. And I think all of us on all sides need to sort of wait and see where the investigation leads. Another big story this week, Hurricane Florence. And as that hurricane stalked the East Coast, President Trump created his own hurricane of controversy by denying that nearly 3,000 people had died as a result of Hurricane Maria, calling it a made-up number by Democrats out to get him. Chuck, this defiant rejection of the widely accepted count infuriated the island's leadership and even some Republican leaders in Congress. Tell us more. Well, you know, it's, it was such terrible timing, no matter whether you're a pro-Trump or anti-Trump, because it came as this other one was bearing down on, you know, the east coast of the United States, particularly in the Carolinas. And, you know, it, it, the biggest criticism of the president was he was personalizing something that was a humongous tragedy for an entire uh, island and a, you know, and a uh, protectorate of the United States of America. And the facts of it are just undeniable. There were, there were uh, thousands of deaths, I think the, 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 around 3,000. Uh, but beyond that, you know, there have been all of these stories about how long it took for the United States government to get in there and help establish uh, uh, aid and, you know, that some parts of the island were without power for a year. It just seemed to mock all of the uh, travails and the troubles and the losses of the people of Puerto Rico. And it was just a really, it was really bad timing as well, too, for the president to, for to come out and say that because other people, as I said, were, you know, sort of under, under the gun of this new uh, Hurricane Florence. And finally, Chuck, late last week you wrote about a National Democratic Party organization that helps competitive campaigns with advice and money. And he is, this organization, I should say, is going to aid Missouri's second district candidate, Court Van Ostrin, to its red to blue list. What makes that addition significant? Well, it just shows that we have a, a number of very pivotal House and, in particular, Senate race uh, in, in, in our region. And, it shows how high this blue wave could go if there is a blue wave. Ann Wagner, who is the uh, second district congresswoman, uh, a veteran legislator, well thought of here in D.C., uh, good campaigner and whatever, um, there's enough evidence out there now uh, that she may be in somewhat a, a, a bit of trouble. She denies this and the National Republican Congressional Committee says it's not going to go in and help her. They believe that, you know, she's got the, the race under control, but she's precisely the kind of candidate, if there is a big blue wave this fall, who could be endangered uh, at the ballot box in November. Chuck, uh, quickly, this is Christopher. Uh, you uh, reported yeah. some news this week about uh, Court Van Ostrin, who is taking on Ann Wagner in the 2nd Congressional District race. Tell us about that. What's the new development? 
Well, it's that it's it's what uh, we were just talking about. It's the uh, you know it's this whole issue of the of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee coming in and uh, spending um, you know some time and resources and money and sending help in to help Court Van Osteren, uh you know in the uh, in his second district challenge of Ann Wagner. All right, Chuck. Thank you very much as always for your time on this Sunday morning. Still to come here on Postscripts, the St. Louis County Council avoided a shutdown, but the love loss continues with some council members and County Executive Steve Stanger. Reporter Jeremy Kohler joins us to explain it all when Postscripts returns. Welcome back to Postscripts. The St. Louis County Council averted a shutdown last week after announcing it had run out of money and would not be able to pay staff members. Thursday, County Executive Steve Stanger temporarily avoided the shutdown by funding the council with $50,000 for two more weeks. In a letter, he asked council members to appoint delegates to, quote, work out these issues in the meantime and forge a new positive working relationship between us. Those were the words reported by Jeremy Kohler. He is the Post-Dispatch reporter who is covering the council, and he joins us this morning. Jeremy, thank you for being with us. The Thanks more things me. change, the more they stay the same with this group, or so it appears. Yes, uh, that's a good way of putting it. Uh, this, this really, this battle goes back to last year. At the end of the year, the the council made a surprise move to cut thirty-one million dollars out of the county spending plan uh, that Stenger had proposed, uh, and it basically it basically cut money to every department. Now the uh, programs weren't necessarily cut. What the council was said they were trying to do was kind of take over control of, of how money is spent in the county. Uh, from year to year, the, the individual departments typically roll over a large surplus to the next year. And um, and so what the council wanted, the council didn't like that. They, they said, we're going to make you spend down that surplus to nothing, and then you you can come to us if you need more money. And uh, uh, and so uh, so they did that, and they they essentially cut the departments down to their 2017 year uh, seven, 2017 spending level. Uh, and so what you saw the first week of January, uh, County Executive Steve Stanger got back right away and re removed five hundred thousand dollars from the council's budget. Now the council had actually tried to increase their budget in, in uh, for this year. And so um, essentially uh, the clock has been ticking. They knew that they were going to run out of money and uh, and they did. Uh, they're, they're running out of money at the end of this week. And so they have no more money to pay staff. And so, as you mentioned, uh, the county executive uh, floated them $50,000 and said, let's try to work it out. Um, and what, what you have today is they're in court uh, in St. Louis County Circuit Court to try to get a restraining order on the county executive so that the money that was taken out of their budget is restored so they can finish off the budget year. And we should note that as we record this on Friday, Jeremy is so graciously Skyping with us, so he is not <laughs> in an earthquake, he's just holding a phone, and <laughs> that right. is what is causing a little bit of the jitter there. <laughs> it's not an issue at all. Jeremy, we thank you for your time and your generosity with that time as you sit at the St. Louis County Courthouse awaiting word here. Uh, the question that I really have as we move forward with this, will time change anything here because Mr. Stanger is likely to win another term in office. Is there a reconciliation possible? Possibly. Uh, Stanger's people have been telling me the last couple of days that, you know, it's really important to them to start smoothing out the relationship with council. Um, and, and, you know, council members, obviously, 
Um, they're in court trying to get a restraining order against the county executive right now. So, I mean, as, as I quoted uh, Councilman Ernie Trakis is saying yesterday, this is a match that has to be played. I think the council sees that, uh, sure, we can we can we can work together. But first, we got to get uh, we have to have some of these things decided in a court. Uh, there are a number of other issues. The council is very unhappy with um, the uh, the fact that the county counselor's office represents them in disputes with uh, with the county executive because the county counselor reports to the county executive. So they've been trying through a number of different ways, changing the uh, county charter um, uh, through lawsuits to try to, ha to have uh, their own lawyers in these disputes, uh, which right now they have lawyers representing uh, councilmen members as individuals, but not as a, a not as a whole body. And so, um, so th there's still a lot of things to work out between these two sides. Um, I do think that uh, they couldn't be working together less at this point. And I think um, probably they all recognize that and you'll start to see some more uh, efforts to work together. They did actually uh, last week come together and on a, a, a agreement to fund some raises for some uh, nurses and other workers at the county jail, which had been in dispute for most of the year. So, so that is one thing that everyone worked together on and it worked out. All right, that's Jeremy Kohler, Post-Dispatch reporter covering the St. Louis County Council. We appreciate your time, Jeremy, and we hope to have you on again soon. Still to come here on Postscripts, Hurricane Florence unleashing on several East Coast states. Ahead, KPLR 11 Chief Meteorologist John Fuller joins us with a closer look at what makes this storm so dangerous. Welcome back to Postscripts. Hurricane Florence continues to be a major national story. Though it dropped from a Category 4 storm to a Category 1 by the time it made landfall, its winds and rain wreaking havoc on the Carolinas and other parts of the East Coast. With that in mind, we have asked KPLR Chief Meteorologist John Fuller to join us to break down what has made this storm unique. And John, we've basically been tracking this storm, you specifically, but me working with you as we anchor that 4 p.m. newscast on KPLR 11. And it's really been interesting to see how it slowed as it approached the East Coast. Yeah, they do kind of bounce off the shoreline, so to speak. But as far as targeting, Wilmington was in its sights early, about four to five days before it made landfall in that general area. It did weaken, so the Category 4 went to a Category 1. As those rain bands get on shore, they lose a little bit of their momentum from the drag on the surface, as well as getting away from their fuel, the warm ocean water. Another interesting aspect, and I suppose, uh, with it being hurricane season, this could be expected in some ways, but while Florence was kind of getting all the attention, there's a few other storms that are out on both coasts that are kind of creating a little bit more intrigue. Yeah, there were four name storms in the Atlantic alone, uh, Joyce and Helene and Isaac and of course Florence, because uh, hurricanes aren't a big issue unless they make landfall. And those are the ones, or Florence is the one that is providing the most impact right now. Are we out of the woods yet, or how much longer do, especially the people on the coast, have to be kind of on guard? Well, uh, I put together a graphic as to what has happened so far. It made landfall Friday morning at 6.15 in the morning as a Category 1 at Wrightsville Beach, North Carolina. That's near Wilmington, the target that was predicted four or five days in advance. Gusts to 105 
And uh, that is very powerful, but certainly not category four. And it's the strongest winds in 50 years. The wave offshore, one of the waves offshore measured 30 feet and the storm surge 7 to 11 feet above normal tide and severe beach erosion, isolated tornadoes. We've already had warnings. This is as of a Friday afternoon and rainfall amounts of 20 to 30 inches, some spots 40 inches. This is going to produce historic flooding. Here's a cool 3D look. Uh, you can see the dimension of the rain about three to 400 miles around all the way up into uh, Virginia, West Virginia. Uh, but the intense rain, the 15 to 20 inch rainfall amounts in that highlighted yellow area concentrated over uh, North Carolina into sections of South Carolina. Hey John, it's got to be a little frustrating for you as a meteorologist. I mean, as you said, four or five days of warning, everyone, including the president of the United States, warning people, you know, to leave, take shelter, get out if you're told to get out. And yet people stayed and there had to be dozens and scores of rescues. And so people really need to listen to local officials in such an event like this, don't they? Yeah, the modeling has improved and nine times out of 10 we're right with these big systems because the modeling locks in and then targets certain areas. Now, sure, it dropped off in the wind uh, speed estimates, but the rainfall alone, historic flooding. And then I saw one report and this is kind of an offshoot. Some people can't afford the gas to evacuate. Mm. There are are poor people that you know that they waited out and just say let's hunker down and stay we can't afford two or three hundred dollars of gas to go and uh, stay in a place and come back a week later and as you alluded to with this storm it's not so much the wind as it is the rain and from what I understand the storm system is kind of just going to hover there for a bit so even what we have seen so far could get worse as far as the flooding, oh yeah, that's, uh, I looked at the uh, river modeling with the rainfall amounts of 15 to 20 inches into the modeling and it's calling for historic flooding, major flooding at all the um, significant rivers in North and South Carolina. So to put that in perspective, remember our Merrimack flooding not too long ago? That would be like that historic Merrimack flooding only more widespread, covering about two to 300 miles worth of rivers that flow back into the ocean. So that water has to evacuate, it has to flow somewhere. So you'll see bridges washed out, you'll see homes inundated. Uh, it is gonna be catastrophic in some locations. All right, that's KPLR 11 Chief Meteorologist John Fuller talking about Hurricane Florence. We always appreciate your time and expertise Thanks on Sunday morning. Thanks for the invitation. Morning. All right, thank you, John. Well, coming up here on Postscripts, we'll take a look at what's trending up, trending down, and Christopher Abe will share that trend to watch for the coming week. We'll be right back. Time now to see what's trending up, trending down, and a trend to look for in the week ahead. Christopher has that. And first, Christopher, what's up? Well, Mike, up is the iPhone. This thing right here, Apple unveiled its next generation iPhones this week, including its biggest model yet. And naturally, its most expensive. Shocking, isn't it? <laughs> the Apple XS has a bigger screen than the iPhone X, and an even bigger version will be called the iPhone XS Max. Say that three times fast, at about $1,100 each. Now, the cheap version, and I put air quotations over cheap, <laughs> will cost you about $750. And what is trending down? Well, trending down, teen vaping is officially a health epidemic, the FDA announced this past week. The government will launch a massive campaign enforcement action, actually, designed to force companies to take steps not to market the e-cigarettes to kids. 
The latest data show a 75% increase in e-cigarette use among high school students this year over 2017. So this is a really dangerous thing and you know they look like little USB drives. You can't tell when your kid has got one of these e-cigarettes. And a trend to watch, Christopher. Well, watching, it looks like Missouri voters will have three different medical marijuana questions to decide this November. If any of the three pass, Missouri would be the 31st state to legalize marijuana for medicinal use. Backers of one of the ballot questions had sued the backers of one of the others, but that lawsuit was withdrawn this past week. It all gets a bit confusing as each measure measures a little different, but if voters uh, enact any of them, then we will have some medical uses of marijuana allowed in Missouri. And I'll give you one more trend to watch. What's that? Cardinals potentially making the playoffs. Let's go Cardinals. About two weeks left in the regular season. At this point, it would appear they would be more likely to be one of the two wildcard teams. But I suppose mathematically the possibility exists they could still be a division You're winner. saying there's a chance. I, I believe there is. All right. Believe. All right. That's Thanks, right. Christopher. And thank you at home for joining us for Postscripts here on Fox 2. To keep up to date throughout the week, check out stltoday.com and fox2now.com. Game Day with Martin Kilcoin is up next, and we hope to see you back here next week for Postscripts.